Hi there, this is Robin Norgren, and I'm your host for Montessori Creativity and the Meaning of Life. I'd like to talk to you about resistance using words from a book called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. He says, I get up, take a shower, have breakfast. I read the paper, brush my teeth. If I have a phone call to make, or, or two phone calls to make, I make them. I've got my coffee now. I put on my lucky work boots, stitch up my lucky laces that my niece Meredith gave me. I head back to my office, crank up the computer. My lucky hooded sweatshirt is draped over the chair with the lucky charm I got from a gypsy in Santes Mare de la Mar for only eight bucks in francs. My lucky Largo name tag that came from a dream I once had. I put it on. On my thesaurus is my lucky cannon that my friend Bob Frasandi gave me from Cuba. I, I point it toward my chair so it can fire inspiration into me. I say my prayer, which is the invocation of the muse from Homer's Odyssey, translation by T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, which my dear mate Paul Rink gave me, and which sits near my shelf with the cufflinks that belong to my father and my lucky acorn from the battlefield. It's about 10.30 now. I sit down and plunge in. When I start making typos, I know I'm getting tired. That's four hours or so. I've hit the point of diminishing returns. I wrap for the day. Copy whatever I've done. Stash it in the glove compartment of my truck in case there's a fire and I have to run for it. I power down. It's 3, 3.30. The office is closed. How many pages have I produced? I don't care. Are they any good? I don't even think about it. All that matters is I put in the time and I hit it with all I've got. All that counts is that for this day, for this session, I have overcome resistance. What I know. There's a secret that real writers know that wannabe writers don't, and the secret is this. It's not the writing part that's hard. What's hard is sitting down to write. What keeps us from sitting down is resistance. Most of us have two lives, the life we live and the unlived life within us. Between the two stands resistance. Have you ever brought home a treadmill let it gather dust in the attic? Ever quit a diet, a course of yoga, a meditation practice? Have you ever bailed out on a call to embark upon a spiritual practice? Dedicate yourself to a humanitarian calling? Commit your life to the service of others? Have you ever wanted to be a mother, a doctor, an advocate for the weak and helpless? To run for office? crusade for the planet, campaign for world peace, or to preserve the environment? Late at night, have you experienced a vision of the person you might become, the work you could accomplish, the realized being you were meant to be? 
Are you a writer who doesn't write? A painter who doesn't paint? An entrepreneur who never starts a venture? Then you know what resistance is. One night I was laying down. I heard Papa talk to Mama. I heard Papa say to let that boy boogie-woogie because it's in him and it's got to come out. John Lee Hooker, Boogie Chillin'. Resistance is the most toxic force on the planet. It is the root of, the, of more unhappiness than poverty, disease. To yield to resistance deforms our spirit. It stunts us and makes us less than we are and we're born to be. If you believe in God, you must declare resistance evil for it prevents us from achieving the life God intended when he endowed each of us with our own unique genius. Genius is a Latin word. The Romans used it to denote an inner spirit, holy and and inviolable, which watches over us, guiding us to our calling. A writer writes with his genius. An artist paints with hers. Everyone who creates operates from this sacramental center. It is our soul's seat, the vessel that holds our being in potential. Our stars beacon and Polaris. Every sun casts a shadow, and genius's shadow is resistance. As powerful as is our soul's call to realization, so potent are the forces of resistance arrayed against it. Resistance is faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, harder to kick than crack cocaine. We're not alone if we've been mowed down by resistance. Millions of good men and women have bitten the dust before us. And here's the biggest bitch. We don't even know what hit us. I never did. From age 24 to 32, resistance kicked my ass from east coast to west and back again. 13 times, and I never even knew it existed. I looked everywhere for the enemy and failed to see it was right in front of me. Judith M. Kunst, in her book, The Burning Word, gives us some suggestions on how to choose a biblical text for Midrash. The Jewish practice, like many in the Christian tradition, relies on a long-established calendar of scripture readings. You study the text that is assigned to the particular week in which you find yourself. Some of the oldest Midrash texts are organized around whole books of the Bible. Rabbis interpreting and arguing each successive verse of Genesis or Exodus. Classic rabbinic Midrash also always originated in a verse from the Torah, but many people today apply the method more loosely, choosing a text from the Bhagavad Gita or the Christian Bible or a poem or a passage from a novel. Though as an adult I married into the Catholic Church, I was raised as evangelical. The latter is a tradition that does not use a calendar or scripture, so my first instinct when making Midrash was to choose an already familiar verse to look at it in a new way. Here, for example, is a tiny part of the Apostle Paul's prayer in the third chapter of his letter to the Ephesians. 
Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory. A text has been chosen. Where does its language pose a problem or raise a question? This text presents a prayer of praise, to him be glory, and also a description of power. This God can act in ways that far exceed our own abilities and perceptions. Why then, I wonder, is the word immeasurably tacked onto this description? Doesn't the vivid phrase, more than all we ask or imagine, sufficiently describe God's power? If I were not seeking to read this text with Jewish eyes, I might dismiss the question as insignificant. Paul just wants to gush about God. But Midrash insists that every word of Scripture is there. For a purpose, every word holds or hides meaning. And so I proceed to the third step, calling on the imagination to, to suggest a reason why that word immeasurably is vitally necessary to a deeper understanding of this text. What does it mean to call on the imagination? It might mean brainstorming, conjuring up a long list of answers, some of which are crazy, some coherent. It can mean making up your own story or a new descriptive word. It can also mean opening up one's own mental files of stories, parables, and poems, glanced, gleaned from the Bible, and a host of books and movies and anecdotes and pulling out one that might shed light on the problem at hand. Whatever the specific approach, imagination always involves some kind of mental leap, often playful, occasionally profound. Jews of every stripe who sit in a synagogue listening to a sermon may not know it, but often when they're listening to what they're listening to is spoken midrash. How would a rabbi then explain the necessity of the word immeasurably in our text? He might start with a story like this one from the Talmud. Seder, Allahu Zuda, chapter 2. There was a king of flesh and blood who had two servants and loved them both with a perfect love. He gave each of them a measure of wheat and each a bundle of flax. And what did the wise servant do? He took the flax and spun a cloth. He took the wheat and made flour. He cleaned the flour and ground kneaded and baked it and set it on top of the table. Then he spread the cloth over it and left it until the king would come. The foolish servant, however, did nothing at all. After some time, the king returned from a journey and came into his house. He said to his servants, My sons, bring me what I gave you. One servant showed the wheat, still in the box, with the bundle of flax upon it. Alas for his shame! Alas for his disgrace. When the Holy One, blessed be he, gave the Torah to Israel, he gave it only in the form of wheat, for us to make flour from it and flax, to spin a garment from it. The story makes clear the crucial difference between safeguarding and actively using the gifts of God. It brings to light something hidden in the text we started with. How is God able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine? Not by divine might alone, says Paul, but by his power that is at work within us. 
Only through human effort does the gift of flax become cloth and the gift of flour become bread. To refuse that effort is to refuse the invitation to collaborate with the Creator in the ongoing work of creation. The king in the Talmud story does not dictate to the servants how they should use the gifts they are given. The wives' servant could have sold the flask and invested the money for profit, or planted it and reaped more flax for the king. To the wise servant, the possibilities for using the king's gifts are limitless, immeasurable even. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory. Hidden in the strange wording of this biblical praise of response to God lies an essential statement that our relationship to that God and about our own immeasurably creative responsibility and power. I've come full circle with this midrash, answered the question I started out with, and gained new insight along the way. In Priscilla Shearer's book, Awaken, she starts with Numbers 14.24. But since my servant Caleb has a different spirit and has remained loyal to me, I will bring him into the land where he has gone and his descendants will inherit it. The Lord had freed ancient Israel from four centuries of bondage in, in Egypt, opening up for them what had once been an unthinkable opportunity to inherit a land flowing with milk and honey. But at a key moment in their pilgrimage to Canaan, a majority of Israel's population shrank back from the daring endeavor of claiming God's promise. They chose the safer route, the more immeasurably easily the more easily explainable route, and the more reasonable and protective route, rather than the guaranteed take-no-prisoners route that led to conquering a whole new realm of territory for themselves and their children. That's why only two of the original two million travelers, Joshua and Caleb, ended up walking as victorious landowners on Canaan soil. Factor it down and you have a profound spiritual equation. Individually, these men were one in a million. And what set them apart, the scripture says of Caleb, but surely of Joshua too, is that they possessed a different spirit. They didn't need to fit in. They didn't need to be liked. They didn't base their conclusions on the majority report. They didn't depend on the approval of their friends for determining which path they would choose to walk. They simply hit the dirt road towards the promised land and never looked back. They believed that the same God who could bring a mighty Pharaoh to his knees could do the same to any other enemy who stood in the way of his plans being fulfilled for his people. As a result, these two, and only these two, who'd begun their lives as slaves in Egypt, were able to complete them as free men in God's country because they were different. Abundant living mandates different living, different even from other believers who may be complacent with their freedom, lulled to sleep in their wilderness wanderings, 
To experience everything God intends, a difference is required. One in which your thought processes, self-disciplines, and most pressing choices carve out a narrow road that is not often tread. One on which you will nearly always walk alone. Alien, stranger, sore thumb. Are you willing to be the one in the million? The traveling conditions are rarely smooth sailing when heading in the direction of abundant living. The places where God's presence and provision, his milk and honey abound, are where bold belief in his promises take priority over man's acceptance and affirmation. Ask the Father, the Deliverer, to give you the kind of courage by his Spirit that would make you willing to stand out from the crowd when called for. The difference will be worth it.